You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day, all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges. I'm here with Trip Baird, an entrepreneur and impact investor who has dedicated his career to health, wellness, and sustainability. Trip is the co-founder and managing partner of the Builders Fund, which is a growth stage impact private equity fund that invests to help solve environmental and social problems. Chip is also on the board of Traditional Medicinals, one of my favorite teas, and Urban Remedies, where I also spend too much money. Um, and is also a certified yoga instructor, surfer, mountaineering, and artist, snowboarder, and endurance runner. Hence, Trip likes to go outside and be outside, probably a little bit more than being inside. Um, welcome, Trip. <laughs> Thank you, Gino. Good to good to hear you. Good to see you. Where are you calling in from today? I'm at my home office in San Francisco. Nice. And well, let's jump right in. I mean, for a guy that's uh, solving um, environmental problems through the use of capital, I mean, you're sitting in a um, huge orange cloud at the moment. You've been sitting in an orange cloud for um, at least a day or two um, and may exist for a while. Um, sort of take me back to where sort of that inspiration began to tackle uh, this nexus of environmental problems and capital. Um, I get the impression you probably start off maybe as a one-dimensional capitalist guy and then you sort of grew into saying like, man, there may be something more here. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot to react there uh, sitting in this orange cloud. I mean, it's, um, it's kind of a heavy time, right? Uh, talking to you in the midst of these multiple intersecting dramas, um, essentially locked indoors, hiding from a pandemic and from uh, smoke uh, as the entire Western half of the United States burns, uh, uh, driven largely by uh, um, you know, environment, climate change created. So uh, it's timely, I guess, but also heavy. So... Anyway, with that as entree, um, yeah, going back to the beginning for me, I mean, I think a lot of my journey to impact began actually uh, long before I started my career. Um, I would go, um, you know, back to high school. Uh, I had the privilege of, of um, learning from a man named Kun Chen, um, uh, both as a Chinese instructor and, uh, and as a meditation teacher. I took a two-year independent study, and for the school year and, and actually most of the summers in between, I was reading Buddhist scripture and uh, meditating an hour a day at the age of 16 and 17. And so, you know, these sort of notions of right livelihood um, uh, and, uh, and the values that come out of that experience and having a uh, lifelong Buddhist have always been part of the journey for me. Um you know, take it forward. I went to Harvard and got two undergraduate degrees simultaneously, one in 
psychology and one in visual and environmental studies, which was, uh, you know, Harvard's big word for their art and design department. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they need a big, big word for everything. Um, and uh, so I had no, no interest in business, no interest in finance, did not, you know, if I, if I, my older self had told my younger self at, uh, at, at 22, where I would be today, I, I probably would have laughed. Um, um, but I sold a, a bunch of paintings actually from my art thesis and, uh, spent, uh, uh, nearly a year and a half traveling around the world after college. Um, I think that's another big kind of foundation stone for me was that, that year plus traveling, uh, Southeast Asia, predominantly, uh, India. Um, you know, I, I joke with friends, uh, and colleagues that I learned more in that year than I did in four years at, uh, in the Ivy Peaks. And, uh, it's true. Um, I think that perspective has always stayed with me. Um, and, uh, you know, landed back in the States, spent some time, uh, running a photography shop and, you know, realized that, uh, I wasn't gonna, um, uh, you know, do that forever in a mountain town and talk to lots of people about, you know, what, what should one do? And most talked about acquiring skills. And, you know, I ultimately went and did what my dad had done, um, as elder sons often do, um, and took a job at Bain and company as a consultant, uh, as a, you know, place to learn about lots of different things, uh, and picked up a bunch of different, um, skills there that, you know, set me on the journey and they had a private equity practice there, which, excuse me, led me ultimately into, into private equity. And, you know, I think at, at Bain, my, uh, my recognition or my big learning was that I couldn't align a career around things I wasn't interested in. I worked on DHL airborne merger and, um, you know, strategy for Charles Schwab and, um, some, some brand work for Columbia sportswear, um, the latter of which, uh, was, was the most interesting given my interest in the outdoors. Um, and I realized I just, I had to get out of big bureaucracy and I had to bring personal interest into my career. And so I went and worked for uh, a private equity firm that, um, that was focused on health and wellness in the consumer space called North Castle Partners. And so that was, you know, my, uh, first real step into, into the world of finance and, um, you know, ultimately the learnings over the subsequent, uh, decade, um, North Castle and then sub subsequently at a, a, uh, uh, a merchant bank that, uh, I left with one of the partners at North Castle West Coast team we left to co-found a merchant bank focused on health, wellness, and sustainability you know, so all in probably 15 years between those two places and um, just learning from impassioned entrepreneurs and, entre you know, uh, and founders of, of companies in that sphere, largely uh, being built around some purpose greater than the profit motive, not necessarily impact the way we would think about it today. But, um, you know, I think that sort of deepened, uh, deepened my own journey as well. Um, kind of brings, brings it more to the present. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot more to unpack in there, but that, that's the, uh, beginnings of it anyway. What, um, uh, where are you at in terms of where you see, um, this nexus between, 
you being responsible, um, a steward, uh, uh, being able to move uh, financial capital into uh, environmental causes, in, into social problems. How, how is that currently sort of evolving for you? Like what feels limiting about it? I mean, you say like, you know, as sometimes I know in my own work, it's like, gosh, I'm doing great work, but I'm also very aware of all the limitations um, of it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I mean, how do you navigate that that that's that reality of like internally, like I see the limitations of my own work, and yet I'm doing good work, um, sort of in the world, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I feel that. I feel. I think it's a great question. Um, I, I'm feeling the limitations. Um, you know, right now, uh, really acutely. Again, I think in this time and place, right? I look at, you know, pandemic and U.S. reckoning with racial injustice, um, you know, uh, an unfolding crisis, uh, income inequality, a political crisis in Washington, you know, um, uh, climate change literally breathing down our necks. And all of it is there's overwhelm, right? And it's just... There's so much there. How much can one small private equity fund um, do? But, um, you know, builders at its root uh, was the outflow of a lot of time and work and and thinking on my part about how I could leverage the skills that I had built over, you know, the 15 to 20 years I'd been working prior. And and then that that call to right livelihood uh, a recognition of these large uh, social and environmental problems, um, and following the the uh, root cause upstream in some ways um, to try to you know, think about how are we here and what can we do. Um, and to me, the you know number one, most of these things are interconnected because you know we in an economic or financial system sit. Um, in deep complexity, ecosystems, if you will, nested inside a social system, nested inside of of uh, natural systems. Um, and you know, as I followed the the problems upstream, I looked to capitalism and the sort of take make waste behaviors of the industrial revolution and the Western you know worldview of of uh, exploitation and colonialism. Um, and uh, uh, rather than, you know, a tendency toward appreciation of complexity and interrelationship, it's been all about ego, sep- you know, separation of the ego from the, the systems and, um, and, you know, the individual versus the, the whole um, without appreciation for complexity, sort of reductionist worldview. Um, and then layer that, uh, you know, across kind of the economic theories of shareholder primacy um, and, you know, short-termism that's come out of uh, the economic system more recently. And, um, you know, that, that ultimately leads to me, me to, to where's my purpose, right? So I, how do we change that? How do we change minds? How do we move trillions? Because that's what, what it will take. Um, and as someone who has been around emerging growth companies, uh, that are making the world a better place, I've seen lots of companies that can make great returns while doing that. Uh, and so, you know, the roots of builders kind of grew out of that notion. How can I, 
how can I move capital towards businesses doing good? Um, and in so doing, prove to you know the, uh, the 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 middle of the bell curve, the the asset aggregators, uh, the, the Goldman Sachs and Black uh, Rocks of the world that that this can, should, must be done. Um, and, uh, and so that, that in some ways is kind of the, the journey. And that's how I bring it back to your question. That's how I, how I integrate, uh, with the limitations. It's, you have to tie the day-to-day minutiae and the frustration of, okay, I'm working a deal to invest in a solar integrator, um, today, but you know, what's the purpose there? It's not just to make money for myself. It's not, to get a deal done it's you know to support a business it's going to make the world a better place create great jobs uh, you know in in part help address climate change um you know help help uh help people and and then generate returns for for shareholders yes create shared value for the various stakeholders in that uh, corporate ecosystem and in building a business that's a demonstration of a better way to do business we can change hearts and minds and in our own small way, hopefully move, move the dial um, uh, against these big problems that we face. And I mean, what's an example of a business that you're currently uh, involved in trip that um, sort of touches on these bases on like all of these interacting points um, that really sort of honors like, wow, this is exhibit a, I wish I had 20 of these in my portfolio to work on because when I'm working on this, I feel like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm giving it a shot on trying to answer all of the different interconnecting or at least a large number of interconnecting uh, nodes. Yeah. Um, and you can't uh, say you know, all of them. I'm going to see. We love, <laughs> we love all of our, our children equally. Do you know, you know, um, you mentioned traditional medicinals. I, I think that that, that business is, um, is is a great uh, case study in what I'm talking about a business that that is um, using a stakeholder model that is is existing in appreciation for um, complexity and is building shared value across its corporate ecosystem such mm-hmm. that it's creating a long-term value generating platform for all stakeholders not a wealth extraction vehicle for shareholders um, you know, as you mentioned, they make fantastic teas. It's an all herbal, uh, medicinal, organic, fair trade teas. In some ways, it's inexpensive healthcare. You know, the number one selling tea on Amazon and at Walmart, and the number one skew at Walmart. Twenty percent are purchased with food stamps. Um, it's a lactation tea called um, Mother's Milk. You know, mm-hmm. so this is something that's used by uh, folks across the spectrum. Seventy thousand points of distribution in the United States. Um, it's a great product, uh, but, you know, impact is not necessarily driven just by product or service inside a business model. You know, they're extremely thoughtful about their employees and, um, you know, creating career paths and paying above living, uh, living wages, uh, across the board. Okay. So that's one, one element. They are hundred percent renewable energy produced, you know, carbon neutral, Okay, so that's one thoughtful element. Um, but the, the deepest impact is ultimately through their supply chain. Um, and, uh, and I think that's where, where uh, you know, my, 
my engagement is, uh, you know, feels most profound. So they, the founders, uh, um, Drake Sadler and Rosemary Gladstar back in the sixties, uh, she was an herbalist and he was a community organizer. Um, he went out to, um, visit supply communities, you know, realized that many of them were unstable. Um, and if they were going to build a business around these kind of pharmacopoeia or drug quality herbs and largely emerging economies, they needed to help build, uh, sustainable communities. Um, mm. um, he loves to tell this sort of story of, of, do you, you know, ask the question of, do you know how many of the drugs worth the world over, um, today, uh, we're talking the trillion dollar, multi-trillion dollar drug industry are still derived from plants. And the answer is it's well over 50% uh, from plants and plant extracts still. And 80% of those are not grown agriculturally. They're, they're, they're picked um, uh, predominantly in emerging economies and predominantly by women. Um, so you start to follow that track down and there's a, there's a deep opportunity for impact there. In, in the sense of the business model, it's, it's self-interested, right? You need, you need to have a source of the quality of herbs that you're trying to put into your teas. Um, but there's a deep opportunity for shared value. And uh, so through the P&L, they, you know, in their cost of goods, anything related to the agriculture, sustainable agriculture, improving the efficacy of the herbs. Um, you know, for instance, if you have a higher concentration of senna, in, um, you know, Seneca, um, you know, you need less of the plant. That's a good thing. Um, but also uh, through their P&L and what they call social business have invested into these communities, everything ranging from building schools in India, water catchment systems in, in the Rajasthan desert and elsewhere, um, buying bicycles for communities so women can get to school, uh, dental clinics in Bosnia, um, you know, health, uh, health clinics in um, you know, and, and I could go on and, uh, that, that is, it's the work of NGOs, um, but it's being uh, funded through, you know, the scaling, uh, uh, of this business. Um, so, you know, and if I imagine if every company in the world, every industry in the world could operate the way traditional medicinals does, um, not focusing on short-term extraction, but focused on building that that sort of value across the, the corporate ecosystem, you know, I think, you know, business really could help address the big problems we face. So. So is there something now traditional medicinals you mentioned was founded in the sixties and seventies and grew, um, you know, this idea of growth capital and you came in and you came in much later. Uh, so was there something about just the longitudinal nature of it that has allowed it to sort of, um, sort of slowly bootstrap its way through this evolution that's unique to traditional medicinals? And can it be sort of uh, replicated in more of a, a, a traditional type of uh, modeling that doesn't allow for like where you're coming into a company? I'm guessing most companies you're coming into have been around for less than five years um, or, mm-hmm. or for sure, maybe less than 10, but very few companies that have been around for 50 years, look for growth capital uh, per se. And so I guess what I'm asking is, is that can you really use this as exhibit A and can it transfer around the world? Because maybe it was able to do things that capital doesn't even allow now, but it had so much traction on the ground by the time the growth capital came in that it's already rooted. 
I'm just guessing. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand maybe where current time and capital uh, maybe um, it doesn't allow for that kind of, I mean, that's a multi-decade project that, I mean, the founders have taken on and still evolving, I'm guessing, right? It's like, it's still constantly mm-hmm. evolving. Essentially, it's a half of a century uh, business model, which is beautiful, mm-hmm. which is absolutely beautiful. I guess why I'm, where I'm going with this is that you run a fund with a time limit. Um, you exist mm-hmm. in 2020. You exist in current modern day capitalism and a group of investors. Um, is that a realistic uh, and how, like, how do we do this in its current context or in our current context of like moving money? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's a it's a business that's been around almost half a century. Um, although it's a business that's also um, more than tripled in the last you know ten to fifteen years. Mm-hmm. So a lot of their growth has come more recently. Um, you know, and and I gosh, I think if more companies took the half a century century worldview, right? Um, we wouldn't be in some of the messes that we're in. So I absolutely think it translates. Um, you know, I won't go through the whole story. As you point out, the whole story is not mine to tell, but, you know, we've been involved since, um, you know, 2016, mm-hmm. um, the business has continued to thrive. Um, you know, largely driven by just a world-class management team and, and a world-class product that, that's meeting the needs of its consumers um, and, uh, and driving customer loyalty, you know, because, um, you know, ultimately as people find the product, not only is it a great product, but they, they find the depth of the stories behind it. And, uh, and that's a profound purpose is a profound driver of, of, uh, of customer loyalty, of higher net promoter scores, of repeat purchase. Um, which is a driver of competitive advantage, right? Um, lowers your cost to customer acquisition. Um, you know, but um, coming back to your question, how, how does this apply or how have we done it? I think, um, look, we, we've, at Builders, we raised about half our capital from former operators and C-level executives who are the builders, right? So we can bring value to the companies we're trying to, to help scale. Um, and the rest of the capital is from values aligned uh, uh, asset owners, foundations, families, uh, fund to funds, um, um, largely with, uh, with an impact orientation, although not all. And uh, yes, we have time limits. Uh, we tried to set them longer than the norm to reflect the longer term values that think about. Um, and the rest of it is about communication about the requirements and limitations of, of the systems that we're using. Um, you know, where you get into trouble around timelines, I think, is if you're not, if there isn't transparency uh, and therefore shared understanding between different constituents, right? So if the founder wants to hold a business forever, but doesn't say that um, uh, and brings in capital from a, uh, a fund that has a time limit or a fund manager who wants to, you know, hold the investment for three years and flip it, you know, you're going to run into trouble pretty quickly with that misalignment. I think in the case of traditional medicinals, you know, there was a clarity from this, this you know, half a century old business and its uh, other shareholders, predominantly still one family, that there was not an intent to sell 
you know, outright to a strategic, which allows us to be clear about how we're underwriting the business. And, you know, we're able to be clear about what our expectations are, um, you know, set a rough timeline and maintain open communication around how, you know, we're going to execute on this growth plan. Uh, and then we're going to work together to find, you know, liquidity for our limited partners in a way that respects the agreements that uh, our fund, uh, you know, has uh, has has uh, set up in order to create the vehicle um, you know, to invest. Um, and my sense is that's going to work out fantastically well, you know, because of the way we approach uh, investing, which is if you build a great business brand uh, and culture um, that is focused on that value creation for multiple stakeholders that customers want to want to buy from employees want to work for the economic side takes care of itself. Yeah. Um, so, and TM is thriving. So mm. I think all of that transfers, transfers to any industry, any stage, um, obviously with variation, but yeah, uh, yeah, we're trying to do it elsewhere. So you mentioned this term, right? Livelihood, uh, something you, um, you, you talked about when back back in your teenage days where you were uh, moved to uh, to write, write livelihood. Can you talk a little bit about the vacuum? Uh, well, so it's twofold. So I'm going to take you way back and then I'm going to take you way forward here a little bit or I'm going to take you to the present. One, can you talk a little bit about the vacuum that um, you were in that uh, led to that kind of seeking? I know that, I mean, I wasn't sort of predisposed to be seeking right livelihood when I was 16. I actually probably led a much different sort of 16 year old existence than, than you did. I came into my right livelihood a little later. Um, but, and then, and then also, um, so that's back then. And now I'm curious about, do you find that actually, um, do you naturally in the law of attraction, do you find that the businesses that you have coming toward you and that you're connecting with, are sort of naturally gravitating to you because as, as a result of how you're carrying yourself or how, or how you want to be in the world. Um, so maybe sort of talk it out a little bit about how this work that you're doing and your path is actually attracting. And essentially these people that are coming to your life, we call them businesses, right? But eventually maybe, maybe this is deeper fodder, right? Maybe, I mean, maybe traditional medicinals, urban remedy and so forth and whoever comes in the future pipeline are merely just opportunities for you to constantly sort of go through this discovery of what right livelihood looks like at different stages, uh, 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 you know, of your life. And then as a third part of that, what sort of eternal, like what's been consistent and then what has evolved as part of that right, right livelihood? Mm -hmm. Okay. There was a bunch in there. I'll have to, you may, may have to guide me, guide me through it. Uh, we'll do. Yeah. So going, Going back first, yeah, I mean, to your point, when I was 16, I was not focused on right livelihood, uh, but that's a facet of, of a uh, spiritual system that that experience at a young, unusually young age led me into, right? There was a, a depth of, of uh, spiritual consideration for a 16-year-old, which I think is a little unusual, how I got there. Um, you know, I wasn't raised particularly religious uh, religiously. Uh, I, I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. And so read a lot. Um, uh, I found through, you know, studying history in high school and, and before that, 
you know, most of the Christian thought systems um, um, had uh, had troubling history around it, right? The usual um, faults and foibles of humanity, uh, predominantly, you know. But but through religious systems across history, there tends to be a leader who had great depth of thought and um, had insight, and then those who followed him thereafter you know, <laughs> and the structures that were built up around those thoughts lead to uh, all sorts of suffering. Um, in any event, I, 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 I was less interested in Western religion as a result. Um, and I was, you know, like many 16, 17-year-olds, I was rebellious and was interested in the Beat Generation and, you know, reading Gary Snyder and and Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti and Jack Kerouac and those types. And that led me into Buddhism. So that was the door. Yeah. Um, it was rebellion. Just, just the same <laughs> as I suspect your, your 16 year old version was. Um, but then, you know, I ran up against again, a, um, uh, you know, a human who uh, led me into a, a you know, a, a depth of study that, that was not surface or, or rebellion. It was about understanding. And, um, and so ultimately that, that stayed, stayed with me as a worldview, mm-hmm. which leads you, leads you to the right livelihood. Um, so that was, that's where that came from. Um, and what was, what, what else, what, what was your next question there? Well, how has it evolved and Tim now bring us up to the present moment? I mean, obviously life presents us sort of different circumstances. I mean, you were, you're 16 then, uh, now, I mean, you're, you know, you, you have a family, um, you mm-hmm. have a certain amounts of achievement and success that you didn't have when you're 16, you have certain responsibilities, you've been exposed to certain things. And then, I mean, just the night, the nature of like, um, the cultural circumstances of the day. So curious how, how, how it's evolved and then how it has mm-hmm. evolved in a way that's in relation to doing your work. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and whether it's attract, you know, it's attracted or, or brings folks around us um, based on that. I, I think, I think it does, right. I think there's a rising, there is a wave that I, I see, have seen, I mean, part of what led me to builders or, or creating the builders business plan was just the observation that purpose driven businesses, mission driven businesses were winning in the marketplace. That was sort of a series of data points that became a line and then did a lot of work around trying to understand why purpose was was uh, becoming a competitive advantage, right? And some of its demographics and the aging of the baby boom population starting to care more about legacy and some of its, you know, the rise of Gen Z and Y and other things like that. But there, you know, these big problems are, are, um, you know, more apparent, uh, and, uh, they're, they're more like crises than just problems than ever before. And so I think there are more and more folks who are, you know, recognizing that, um, you know, just collecting a paycheck and their job or, um, you know, just trying to, to make money as a sort of life accumulate, uh, things as a path through life is not fulfilling. It's not a path to happiness and it's, it's putting us in a bad place. Um, so, uh, that alignment of recognition, um, 
you know, it goes back to my other degree from Harvard, the psychology of that, the psychology of happiness um, in, uh, in business builders and how people or customers choose what, what partners they select. I think there's absolutely alignment there. Um, so how has it evolved over time for me? Um, look, I think it's, it's deepened. I think we're all on our own journeys. I, I started out picking up uh, health and wellness because I like the outdoors and, you know, in, in looking at the guys building naked juice or fighting soda, real put real food in a bottle. Don't, don't, don't drink soda or, you mm. know, Equinox was fitness as a lifestyle and in the face of a, an obesity epidemic where, where 60% of the country is overweight and 40% of us are obese and it's breaking our healthcare system. So these are, you know, inspiring people building really cool businesses. Avalon Alba, skincare was, do you know what kind of chemicals you're putting on your skin every day? Um, um, you know, maybe not, these are not sort of addressing poverty and uh, larger problems that we've come to try to face, you know, to address more later on, but it was, it was the roots. And then PCG for me was kind of, how do I re redirect more capital towards these kinds of businesses you know, rather than doing a few deals a year. And then, you know, ultimately it was, and I think the impact Look, the term impact investing hadn't been coined uh, back then. Sure. So uh, that that that's all evolved as well, and deepening understanding of of businesses. You know, sort of my my MBA uh, on the job over time, and um, you know, understanding the levers and the mechanisms, uh, how purposes can be levered uh, leveraged as a competitive advantage, and um, ultimately wanting to get back into pure private equity. Um, and this opportunity to start my own firm. Um, and I'm still, still learning. I think we're, and people are fighting, fighting over which God of measurement is best. And, um, <laughs> we are, we're shifting, we're shifting our folk, you know, for certainly much more towards, uh, equality and, and social justice, uh, as a field, I would think in, in the context of what we're seeing today, um, you know, and, and look, I think impact is a spectrum and as, as is the sort of spectrum of, of, uh, return versus philanthropy, right? You think about it going from traditional finance all the way out to philanthropy and there's different elements in between. Um, mm. so, and I, like I don't the, know, meandering response to your, to your question, but yeah, yeah. There you go. And, and so, um, what I've always found is in our conversations, you've, inevitably talked about your artwork and your and your and your exploits out in the natural world whether it's in the context of like performance as a surfer or a mountaineer or a snowboarder but then also just sort of more of a phenomenological engagement of nature of just simply like being mm -hmm. like being being with the source um take yep. a, you know to sort of summarize it um like how much of that is you? I mean, people obviously know you as a, you know private equity guy, the builders fund guy. I mean that that is your LinkedIn persona in terms of mm -hmm. you know, the impact space in general. You may have probably some yeah. some followers for your art. You your close friends know you're about your out your backcountry uh, experiences, but. Take me into sort of that interior landscape and like how much of like, wow, this is really me. And if I, uh, and I'm trying to squeeze as much of this into my impact space. I mean, you talked about health and wellness and I can see it creeping in there. Uh, 
But I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm interested in how much of that really informs the work you do. And then also maybe a little bit on the like, ah, I wish I can probably spend more time doing this um, because mm-hmm. I guess where I'm trying to go, is there a negotiation that's taken on a inside trip in terms of trips interior world a little bit of like, mm-hmm. um, oh shit, another three meetings um, about um, X, Y, Z. <laughs> And I haven't painted or drawn in three months. Uh, my surfboard's collecting dust. Yep. Um, so, I mean, just sort of how do you navigate the wholeness of trip? Yeah. Um, and plus you're a parent, of course, and a partner. So yeah. you got a lot of hats. Yeah. I, I, we, all, we all have a lot of hats and there's a lot of juggling and you know, it's funny. We get together every once in a while, and I, I, I often um, find that you're kind of turning the dials at different times, right? As you're reflecting on where you're at at a given time, right? And my my dial here, you know, toward the personal space came a little. It's a little out of alignment, or you know, I've been been working too much and not paying attention to the personal, or you know, uh, Shana and I, my wife and I need to get out for dates or I need more alone time with my boys. You know, it's just, that's life. I think everyone's got that. I, my inner world. Yeah. That, that, that connection to the source is important for me. I think, you know, that space between breaths, the flow of, uh, of, you know, steps climbing, uh, icy hill, um, you know, um, being in the water or going for a long run that, that they're all forms of meditation. And that's to me, one, one path toward, you know, self, self realization and fulfillment and, and, and peace. Um, you know, it informs my approach to work. I don't know that I'm thinking about surfing per se when I'm in a boardroom. Um, um, but it's who I am. Um, you know, nature, I think, gosh, I, if, if more of humanity spent time in nature, the, the, that sort of uh, lack of connection that we have as a society, I think would be less of a problem. Um, you know, standing on the top of Denali and looking out over the world or, or um, you know, contemplating the vastness of the Pacific Ocean makes you feel small and insignificant in a way that's profound and important, I think, for us. It breaks down our... Um, you know, the sort of structure of the universe revolving around my consciousness. <laughs> um, so that stuff, of course, it comes in. Um, it comes into why I do what I do. For me, it's, um, you know, I wake up in the morning and, and um, I think the, the, the biggest thought you can have is of gratitude, right? It's like that we're here at all. You know, the the mode of dust and a sunbeam, our pale blue earth, to use Carl Sagan's words, it's, it's um, that, that life exists in the first place is a miracle by itself. Um, and so I have a, as far as I know, a, a short time on this earth, how am I going to use it? Those are big questions. And, you know, again, collecting a paycheck, punching a clock, it's not a, not a way to use your finite time, I think. And so, I think in my work to try to find a way to make it meaningful, I uh, feel like that, that the time is worthwhile is looking toward a purpose greater than myself. Um, you know, and so my ego loses out. I don't get to surf so much anymore and that's okay. Um, 
and when it, when it happens, it's fun and it's great, and I get to enjoy it um, as much for the people I'm doing it with. Um, but we have to prioritize too. So yeah, keep yeah. on juggling. For sure. Well, th- thank you so much, Trip. Um, I'm always impressed by um, your willingness to constantly revisit the um, the complexity and the relationships that uh, you're involved in, and uh, to continually. Um, execute even in the midst of not knowing exactly how all the chips may fall. I mean, you're still moving forward. Um, and, <laughs> and I mean, I know that you're a hustler, you're also a thinker and um, I mean, you're also a sensitive person. So, I mean, those are all unique characteristics. I do think one of the gifts that you provide the space is really um, just understanding how to Tracked impact throughout, not just in terms of the product that's produced, but uh, the quality of the teams, uh, the quality of the supply chains. I know you spend a lot of time um, on all the stuff that people don't see, um, which eventually still has a material manifestation on all of us since we're all in this together. And so thank you for that good work. And um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's, it's been very juicy for sure. <laughs> Thanks, Gina. Thanks for the kind words and for the opportunity. It's always fun to talk to you, my friend. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.
Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. 